What's up? 10 o'clock. We're good. Another full house. Let me just say thanks to those of you who were waiting on seats. I know there were some of you in the back of the room uh, waiting for seats to open up. So thanks for your patience. I hate that you're having to wait, uh, but it is the problem that we face these days. Uh, this building at 10 and 1130 continues to be packed beyond capacity. Uh, don't tell anybody we're putting this many people in the room because I don't know that we're supposed to have this many people in the room. But I wanted to take this opportunity just to remind all of us one more time that you can help us as we look for a new property and we're pursuing new property uh, right now so that we can relocate our church family and open up more space. You can help us to make room now in the meantime, all right? If you're a guest in our church, if you're new, you can come to church whenever you want. We don't care, all right? If this is your church, I would ask you to consider coming at 8.30 or 5 o'clock if it works with your schedule. And a lot of people, they've already done that. Uh, we are seeing the largest crowds we've ever seen at 8.30 and 5 o'clock these days, which is great. But every time we open up space, it fills back up. So we just have to keep having these conversations so that uh, we don't have to turn people away, all right? So if you want to try an 8.30 or 5, come hang. I think you'll love it, and uh, hopefully you will at least. 8.30, I don't know. You're more godly, I think, if you wake up early to come to church. So maybe that's some motivation. I tell people all the time, I wouldn't be here at 8.30 if I didn't have to preach. So um, if you come at 8.30, listen, I'll, I'll give you a prize, okay? Let's grab our Bibles. Let's grab our Bibles, or if you have a device with an app, uh, go to James 2 with me. James 2, today we're in week four of a series on the book of James, and it's in today's passage that we find the central theme of the entire book, faith works. So again, if you have your Bibles, go to James chapter 2. I don't know if any other parents in the room are like this, but whenever my family goes anywhere this time of year, the first thing we do when we get home is make our daughter Rowan wash her hands. We have dealt with too many stomach viruses and too many colds to take any chances. So just this past week, we got home from a family outing, and my wife, she headed upstairs with the baby to get her ready for bed, and I was left downstairs with Rowan to ensure that she washed her hands. Well, she heads to the bathroom, and I wait in the kitchen and I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and I never hear the water turn on. So I go back to the bathroom, and I find my four-year-old in the bathroom just hanging out in the bathroom. Kids are weird, aren't they? If you don't have kids yet, just wait. One day you'll find out kids do weird things. So I, I say to my daughter, uh, you're supposed to be washing your hands. And she says back to me emphatically, I know. So I reply, well, the water's not on. And she again replies emphatically, I know. And so I'll be honest, in this moment, I'm having trouble knowing where to go next. Like, if you've ever had a conversation with a four-year-old, you'll get this. But it's almost like they have two people trapped inside their little bodies. And you never know which one you're going to get. 
You don't know if you're going to get the reasonable one who loves you and wants to obey, or if you're going to get the crazy drunk uncle one, right, who's always angry and unreasonable and speaks in incomplete sentences and just can melt down at any moment. So I'm trying to be delicate, and I'm trying to speak to my daughter gently and lovingly to avoid a, a meltdown, a freak out. So I say to her, babe, look, look, if you know you're supposed to wash your hands, then just turn the water on and, and wash your hands. And you already know what she says back to me, right? I know. <laughs> Unbelievable. Here was my daughter's problem. Even though my daughter claimed to know the importance of washing her hands, she acknowledged it. She failed to act on what she claimed to know. And look, this is the same problem that characterizes the lives of countless people in regards to faith. There are many people out there that acknowledge what's true, but they fail to act on what they claim to know. Look, I would bet some of us in the room, we know those people. I would even bet that some of us in the room today are those people. And if so, here's what you need to know. According to James, faith that acknowledges but fails to act isn't really faith at all. If you have your Bibles open to James 2, let's dive in. Verse 14, and I'm going to show you what he means. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, what is it? It's dead. What we're going to find as we walk through today's passage is James speaking of faith in three different categories. And the first category is found in the verses we just read. Here it is, if you're taking notes, dead faith. Here's a really simple question for you. What did dead people do? Not a trick question. You know the answer. Come on. What did dead people do? They do nothing. And why? Because they're dead. Can I tell you the same is true of people with dead faith? It's really easy to spot a person who has dead faith. A person who has dead faith will acknowledge what's true about Jesus and the Bible, yet they're always busy doing what? Nothing. That's the point James makes in these opening verses. And he makes his point by asking two rhetorical questions. First, he says, what good is it if a person claims to have faith but has no works? Another way to ask it could be, what good is it if a person acknowledges Jesus but fails to act like Jesus? And the answer is simple. What's no good? Second question, can that type of faith save a person? And the answer is no. No, it can't. And no would want, won't. And, and James, he uses a, a great illustration to really drive his point home. Imagine it. He says to us, hey, uh, if you come across a brother or sister, that's a fellow believer in Jesus, and this person is in need. They don't have enough clothes to keep them warm. They don't have enough food to keep them nourished. And you say to them, hey, uh, hope things turn around soon. Hope you find a coat. Hope you find some food so that you can, can eat well. Hey, I'll even be praying for you that God would meet all your needs so that you can stay warm and well fed. James says if we do that, what good is it? It's no good, is it? And if that's your response, what you have is a dead faith. You see, what you should do when you see a brother or sister in need is stop praying and start helping. You need to quit asking God to meet their needs and realize that God put you in their life as an answer to their prayers. 
You see, that coat they've been praying for, it's in your closet. That food they've been praying for, it's in your refrigerator. But if you have a dead faith, that's where those things will stay. Now, some of us might wonder, where in the world does this guy, James, get off making such bold statements like that? Well, he took cues from his older brother, Jesus. Just a couple weeks ago, I touched on a passage found in Matthew 25, and I want to expound upon it today. In that passage, James, or I'm sorry, Jesus gives us a picture of what's going to take place at his second coming. Think about this with me. The Bible says that on that day, the skies are going to open up, and Jesus is going to return to earth not as a humble servant, but as a ruling king. 100 million angels are going to be in tow. And King Jesus is going to come and set his throne up here on the earth. And he says he's going to gather the nations before him, and he's going to start separating people. He's going to put a group of people on his right, a group of people on his left. And when he's finished, he's going to say to those on his right, come inherit my kingdom. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. I was sick, I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And these people on his right are going to say back to him, Jesus, when did we see you in need? And his response will be, you saw my brothers in need. And whatever you did for the least of my brothers, in reality, you did it for me. And then Jesus is going to turn to those on his left. And he's going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. I was hungry. You gave me nothing. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing. I was naked. You left me that way. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I was sick, I was in prison, you never came to visit me. And like those on the right, the people on the left are going to ask Jesus, when did we see you in need? And he's going to say back to them, you saw my brothers in need. And whatever you failed to do for the least of my brothers, you failed to do for me. Let me make sure we're getting this, all right? What did dead people do? Nothing. What do people with dead faith do? Nothing. People with dead faith might acknowledge Jesus, but they don't act like Jesus they don't serve, they don't give, they don't love, they don't sacrifice, they don't care. They have a faith that is alone. And according to what James says in verse 17, a faith that's alone, unaccompanied by good works, that's a dead faith, and dead faith saves no one. The second category of faith that James speaks of in our passage is this, demonic faith. Demonic faith. I want you to go back to the passage, verses 18 and 19, and uh, we'll get a picture of this. All right, here we go. Let's read together. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So in verse 18, James starts by pointing us to an argument that is still very alive in our world today. It's the argument between faith and works. There are two sides and you have the faith people on one side saying, faith is most important. And then you have the works people over here saying, no, 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 works are most important. And I'll make it practical, all right? Faith people say, look, acknowledge Jesus, but don't do too much. I mean, if you do too much, you'll be just another religious, churchy, legalistic person, and you don't want that to be true of your life, right? So sit down, trust God. He's going to do what he wants to do, save whom he wants to save. He's going to provide when and how he wants to provide. Don't do much. And then you have the works people over here going, man, for crying out loud, do something. You can't just trust in what Jesus has done for you. 
if you really want God to love you, accept you, be pleased with you, you need to go to church, you need to serve, give your money, be baptized, just for crying out loud, do something. And James is saying here in verse 18, both sides are wrong. Both sides of the argument are wrong. Hear me, our good works don't save us. The good work of Jesus saves us. But as James points out, when we express and put our faith in Jesus' good work, doing so should ultimately lead to good works flowing from our lives. And if that's not the case, we may very well have demonic faith. Here's demonic faith. We see it in verse 19. Jesus in that verse, he po- or I'm sorry, James in that verse points to what's known as the Shema. It's a Jewish creed. It's based upon Deuteronomy 6.4, and it acknowledges the truth that there is one God, the God of Israel and the God of the Bible. So James says to his readers, look, it's great that you believe God is one, but you should know even the demons of hell believe that, and they shudder at its reality. Please don't miss what he's saying here. He's telling us that even demons have an intellectual understanding of who God is. Chances are demons know a whole lot more about God than we do. I would bet that if we sat down and had a theological debate with a demon, most of us, we would probably get schooled. But not only do they have an intellectual understanding of God, look, they experience an emotional response anytime they think of him. The demons of hell think about God and they shudder. They tremble in terror at his character and his power. Look, here's the point. You as a person can have an intellectual understanding of God and even feel certain emotions toward God and still end up in hell one day. Listen, I'm telling you that because I love you. I'm not telling you that to be the hardcore uh, hellfire brimstone guy, but I need you to know that an intellectual understanding and emotionalism does not save people. If what you know and what you feel does not lead to obedience and good works, but instead you remain defiant, rebellious, and disobedient toward God, what you have is demonic faith. And demonic faith, like dead faith, doesn't save anyone. The third category of faith that James speaks of, it's what we're going to call working faith. This is the faith we all need. This is the faith that saves. This is the faith that really matters. And James gives us a picture of working faith in, uh, in verse 20 on, verses 20 through 26. So read this with me. He continues, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So anybody that would argue, James is going, no, 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 let's get real here. I'm going to show you that your argument is lame. Your argument doesn't hold up. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, this is so important, so hang on to it, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, what is it? It's dead. It's dead. I love it. In this passage, in these few verses, uh, James, he uses two case studies from the Old Testament to give us a picture of working faith. And I love his choices, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham was a pagan. Rahab was a prostitute. 
yet both were loved by God and used by God in extraordinary ways. I think that should encourage some of us in the room today. You see, I bet there are some of us here who wonder at times, can God really do anything with a life like mine? Can God love me? Can God accept me? Can God use me? After the sins I've committed, the mistakes I've made, the life I live, can God really do anything with a person like me? Look, look, look. The answer is yes. Yes, he can. No one is beyond the grace of God. God, if he can do something with a pagan and a prostitute, I promise he can do something with you. Do not lose sight of what God wants to do in your life. Listen, with that in mind, let's talk about Abraham and Rahab. All right, first, Abraham. This was a man that God made an extraordinary promise to all the way back in Genesis 12. He came to this pagan guy who didn't love God, didn't care about God, and he said to him, Abraham, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to father a nation of people who are going to belong to me. I'm going to bless these people, and I'm going to use them to bless all the nations of the earth. Sounds like an amazing promise, right? But there was a problem. When Abraham received this promise, he was 75 years old, his wife was 65 years old, and they had no children of their own. I think you'd agree with me, it's pretty hard to father a nation of people if you're an elderly couple with no kids, right? But God says, I'm going to do something miraculous, something that that can only be explained by me. Abraham, Sarah, in your old age, uh, you're going to have a son, and he's going to fulfill this promise through him. I'm going to fulfill this promise to make you the father of this nation. So they sat back and they waited. 25 years they waited on this son to come along. So imagine it. Abraham's 100. Sarah is 90. And she gets the news. I'm pregnant. Crazy. And nine months later, man, she has this little baby boy named Isaac, this promised son. What a beautiful day. Well, a short time later, we find this story in Genesis 22. The Bible says when Isaac grew to be a young man, God comes back to Abraham and he says, Abraham, that promised son I've given you, I want you to sacrifice him. Listen, I know that's hard for us to make sense of, especially if we're new to church or the Bible. Uh, But here's what we need to remember. In this story in Genesis 22, what we find is a foreshadowing of what God would do for us one day through Jesus Christ. A son would be miraculously born of a woman who couldn't have a son unless God did something to intervene in her situation. That son would come from the line of Abraham. He would be one of Abraham's descendants. And God, our loving, gracious father, would sacrifice his own son one day on our behalf. Anytime you read that Old Testament story, you just remember this story points us to Jesus. So Abraham receives the instruction, sacrifice your son, and he sets off. He straps a pile of wood onto his son's back, much like the piece of wood that was strapped onto Jesus' back when he went to the cross. And he arrives at the place where he would perform the sacrifice. He lays his son down, and just as he's about to lower his knife into his son's body, the angel of the Lord shows up and speaks up. Many scholars believe this was Jesus himself making an Old Testament appearance. And he says, Abraham, stop, don't do it, don't lay a hand on the boy. I now know that you fear the Lord because you haven't kept your one and only son from me. Look, don't miss it. James is telling us that it was Abraham's obedience in that moment that justified him and completed his faith. In other words, Abraham's willingness to say yes to God proved that his faith in God was authentic and real. He was so convinced 
God was going to come through on his promise to use him to father this nation of people. So convinced that in Hebrews eleven nineteen we read that, that Abraham believed even if he did kill his son, God would raise him up from the dead just to keep his word. That's working faith. Abraham didn't just acknowledge God, he acted on what God called him to do. The same was true for Rahab, right? Rahab, this prostitute, she lived in a city called Jericho. This was a city that God's people would have to take, would have to conquer in order to enter the promised land that God was giving them. And so Joshua, the leader of God's people at the time, he decided to uh, send two spies into the land to scout it out before they went into battle. Well, the spies show up, they need a place to crash, and lo and behold, Rahab, she invites them into her home. I think this was almost God's sovereignty at play, right? Here's a prostitute inviting two strange men into her home. Nothing weird about that in the eyes of people. And so they go, they crash at her place, and the king finds out they're there, the king of Jericho. So he sends two men, or he sends his men after the two spies, they get to Rahab's house, and she covers for them. She sends them up onto the roof, and she tells the king's men that they left. They better hurry. If they uh, set out into the night, they might be able to find them. Now, why in the world would this lady do that? Well, the answer is found in Joshua 2, verses 9 through 11. And I want us to read it together because it is amazing what she says. Look, she's speaking to the two spies after she saved their lives. And she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And we heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. I love this next part. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens And he's God on the earth beneath. Isn't that amazing? In this passage, Rahab, she doesn't just acknowledge God, but she acts. She saves the lives of these two men. And in return, God saves her life. And she and her family are allowed to enter the promised land alongside God's people. That is working faith. People who possess working, saving faith don't just acknowledge what's true. They act on it. Now, I told you we were going to come back to verse 24. In light of their stories, James says something that we have to make sense of, all right? And I'm going to put it back up here so we can talk about it. Look, he says, in light of Rahab and Abraham's stories and their faith, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I know what all you Bible nerds out there are thinking. You're thinking, wow, it it sounds like James is contradicting Paul here. And if you're new to church in the Bible and you're thinking, well, who in the world is Paul? Uh, Paul was one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. He wrote the majority of the New Testament, and he taught consistently and constantly what we know in the Christian world as justification by faith alone. I know when I say that, some of us were were trying to figure out what I'm talking about. Don't worry about it. I'm going to make sense of it and explain it in a moment. But before I get there, I want to show you two passages in which Paul said some things that, that makes many people believe he and James contradicted each other. All right, check it out. First, this is Romans 3.28. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Do you hear what he's saying here? All right, let, let me show you another one. Galatians 
chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Look, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you hear the apparent contradiction? You've got Paul on this side saying, uh, nobody's justified by works. People are justified by faith alone. And then we have James here in chapter 2, verse 24, saying, uh, no, 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 no. People aren't only justified by faith. Uh, they're also justified by works. So what in the world do these guys mean? And how do we make sense as just normal, everyday Christian people trying to follow Jesus? How do we make sense of this apparent contradiction? Well, we need to consider three things, all right? And I'll put them up here for you. Three things, audiences, definitions, and conclusions. Audiences, definitions, and conclusions. First, we need to consider the distinct audiences that James and Paul wrote to. Paul wrote to pagan Gentile people who were trying to figure out what it meant to be Christians. And they were asking Paul, Paul, what do we need to do? If we want to be saved, tell us what to do. I mean, how often do we need to go to church? What do we need to give? What rules do we need to follow? What does our diet need to look like? Do we need to be circumcised or are we okay there? Please, Paul, tell us we're okay there, right? What do we need to do? And Paul writes and he says, you don't need to do anything. Jesus has done everything. If you do anything, you're going to ruin everything. He's done it all. It's not Jesus plus church attendance, Jesus plus serving, Jesus plus giving, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus circumcision. It's just Jesus. It's always only been Jesus. And then James, he's writing to a different audience. He's writing to a group of Jewish believers, people who grew up with the Old Testament scriptures in front of them, people who long awaited the Savior of the world to come, people who believed that Jesus was that long-awaited Savior Yet many of them weren't living like Jesus. And so James writes, listen, James writes not to instruct his audience in how to be saved. He instructs them in how to live as saved people. Are you with me? He's not telling them to put their faith in Jesus. He's telling them to put their faith in Jesus into action. And why? Well, because that's what followers of Jesus do. When a person has a working, saving faith, they don't just acknowledge Jesus. They act like him. The second thing to consider are the definitions that uh, Paul and James use for the word justify in their respective passages. They use that word in different ways to mean different things. First, Paul used the word in a legal sense. He was trying to get his audience along with us to understand that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as God, Savior, Lord, King, that we are justified before God. Meaning that we're freed from the penalty of sin, which is, according to the Bible, death, spiritual death and physical death. So I'll make it practical. Look, the moment you put faith in Jesus, in his perfect life, in his death on the cross, in your place for your sins, when you put your faith in his resurrection from the dead, when you trust that Jesus is the only way out of sin, death, and hell, and into new and eternal life, your faith in him is all it takes for you to be justified before God. Your faith in him is all it takes for God to declare you as a righteous person. Your faith in Jesus is all it takes for God to love you, accept you, and adopt you into his family. When you put faith in Jesus, God sees you, look, just as if you'd never sinned. James, he uses the word justify to mean something different. His use of the word falls more in line with prove, rationalize, or vindicate. 
I want you to know James is not disagreeing with Paul. He knows that his older brother Jesus is the only one who can save. He knows that you and I don't need to help older brother out and, and add on to what he's done at the cross for us. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, it's your faith plus your good works that'll justify. It's your faith plus your good works that, that will cause God to love, accept, and adopt you into his family. What, what he's teaching instead is this, that while our faith justifies us before God, it's our good works that justify our faith. But let me just say that again, because I don't want you to miss it. All right, lean in. He's teaching that while our faith justifies us before God, it's our good works that justify our faith. So in other words, you and I can't just say we have faith and that be the end of it. He's telling us you and I can't just acknowledge Jesus and then not act like Jesus and assume we have a faith that saves Saving faith, hear me, is not just about belief, it's about behavior. Saving faith doesn't only affect the internal, it affects the external. And James is teaching us here that, that the true test of whether or not a person has saving working faith is this. Are good works flowing from their lives or are they not? If they are, that's awesome. Those good works justify, prove, rationalize, vindicate that person's faith. If there are no good works present... Bad news, that person's faith is in question, and chances are they possess a demonic or dead faith. And again, those types of faith don't save anyone. The last thing to consider are the conclusions. Uh, when you keep reading Paul's writings, you actually find that he came to the same conclusions that James came to concerning faith and works. Like, for example, in Ephesians 2, verse 10, Paul writes, for we are God's workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand, that's before our lives ever began, that we should walk in them. So he's teaching us that God created us and saved us. Why? To accomplish good works. In Romans uh, 2, 13, Paul goes on and he says this, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. What's he saying? He's just saying what James is saying. That a person who possesses saving faith not only acknowledges Jesus, but they act like Jesus. And can I just tell you, please don't miss it, can I tell you that Jesus agrees? Jesus agrees. In Matthew 7, verses 18 through 20, Jesus, he gives us a lesson on fruit trees. He says it's really easy to know whether a fruit tree is a good tree or a bad tree just by looking at the fruit it produces. Good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. In the same way, Jesus teaches us that it's really easy to know whether or not a person belongs to him, whether or not they're truly following him. If they belong to him, if they're his, good spiritual fruit will come forth from their lives. And if there is no fruit coming forth from their lives, Jesus says they're a lot like that bad tree that needs to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, hear me, people who possess saving faith don't just acknowledge Jesus, they act like Jesus. So where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us in need of self-inspection. All of us in the room today need to ask ourselves a really hard question, which is this. What category of faith best describes our faith? Do we have a dead faith? A faith that acknowledges Jesus but fails to act? Do we have a demonic faith? A faith that is predicated upon intellectual understanding and emotionalism, yet... We remain somehow in rebellion, defiant, disobedient toward God. Or do we have a saving, working faith? Do we acknowledge Jesus? And does our faith cause us to act like Jesus? Look, 
Look at me for a minute. If your answer is anything other than working faith, your faith can't save you. And what you need to do today is put your faith in the only one who can save you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. If that's you, I want to help you put your faith in him right now. I just want to invite you all over the room to bow your heads, to close your eyes, get alone with God, get alone with your thoughts. Maybe you walked in the room today and your faith is non-existent. You've never trusted in Jesus. You've never asked God to invade your life, to make you a new person, to free you from sin, to give you the hope of, of new and eternal life. Or maybe you're that person who's walked in today and you've realized, wow, uh, that working faith, that's not me. I've got dead faith. I've got demonic faith. I have long acknowledged who Jesus is, what's true about him. But I'm not acting like him. I'm still rebellious. I'm still defiant. I'm still disobedient. I'm doing what I want to do. I say all the right things, but my life does not match up with my mouth. Maybe you're that person and you've realized today that the reason for that is simple. You've never truly put your faith in Jesus. You've never handed over the reins of your life to him. You've never come in humility and told Jesus just how much you need him. Listen, if you walked in today and, and you have a non-existent, a dead or a demonic faith, I want you to know that it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how far you think you've run from God. God loves you. He put his son on a cross for you and he wants a relationship with you today. It's a free gift. All you've got to do is accept it. And I want to help you accept that gift right now. Look, in the quietness of your heart and your seat, if you need to put your faith in Jesus, just say something like this. God, I need you to save me. God, I confess and recognize that I'm a sinful person. That my sin has kept me from you. But God, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. That he rose from the dead so that I can have new and eternal life. God, I'm putting my faith in him as the Savior I need today. I say, yes. God, would you cleanse me of my sin? Change me. Transform me. Save me. Free me. God, take my life and make me into the person you created me to be. Look, if you just prayed with me, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to do something courageous. It's a small step, but at the same time, I understand it's a big step. Look, in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to respond and our prayer team's going to come and stand down front with me. If you just prayed and you said yes to Jesus, I want you as we stand to get out of your seat and to come meet one of us down front and just say to us, hey, I said yes to Jesus. We want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. And then we want to give you some resources to help you get started in your new relationship with him. So let me pray for your courage and we're going to move. All right, God, I am trusting that in... Uh, the, the, the few moments that took place, uh, God, behind us, that, that there are people in this room who said yes to your son. God, would you give them the courage to tell somebody, to get out of their seat, not to sit and to stay comfortable. God, but to get up and to make known what you've done in their lives today. God, give them courage. Give them boldness. God, we're trusting you for that. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his powerful name that is above every name.